Hey friends, Catlaw Hedquist here with a reminder that locally owned and artist operated bizbooks.net is still your best source for plays, acting books, scene books, teacher resources, and much, much more. And as you, like we, are clearly fans of Sabrina and YVR Screen Scene, we want to offer you 15% off your next purchase with the coupon code SCREENSCENE23. So come check us out at bizbooks.net, sign up for our newsletter, and follow us on social to learn what's new. And if you're in the Vancouver area, Watch out for one of our pop-up shops throughout the year to come say hello and shop in person. Remember, Screen Scene 23 promo code is only available at bizbooks.net for a limited time. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain on the Vancouver film and television industry and celebrate its beating heart. Namely, the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Rani Firminger. If you live in Canada, you might remember this breaking news story from 2013. Authorities thwarted a terrorist plot to blow up the British Columbia legislature in Victoria on Canada Day of all days. A couple, John Omar Natal and Amanda Anna Karodi, based in Surrey and recent converts to Islam, had been arrested for planting pressure cooker bombs at the legislature. It was a chilling story. But as time went on, the story became chilling for an entirely different reason. Natal and Karodi had been targeted by undercover officers. These officers essentially coerced this emotionally and economically vulnerable couple into making jihadist plans. They wouldn't have done it otherwise. It's called entrapment. It's why the BC Supreme Court overturned their conviction. And as we learn in the gripping documentary Manufacturing the Threat from filmmaker Amy Miller, it is far more nefarious and widespread than Canadians might realize. The film dives deep into the unsettling world of agent provocateurs and entrapment within Canada's national security apparatus. Manufacturing the Threat is a thrilling and emotional film which examines this deeply disturbing episode in Canadian history where this impoverished couple from Surrey was coerced by undercover law enforcement agents into carrying out a terrorist bombing, shining a light into the murky world of police infiltration, incitement, and agent provocateurs. The film shows how Canada's policing and national security agencies, granted additional powers after 9-11, routinely break laws with little to no accountability or oversight. Manufacturing the Threat had its world premiere at 2023 Doxa Documentary Film Festival, and it is currently screening at VIF Van City Theatre right here in Vancouver. Thus, I am delighted to have filmmaker Amy Miller on the podcast today to talk all about it. Amy, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thank you so much, Sabrina, for that excellent intro. Well, thank you for thanking me. Amy, 
did manufacturing the threat come to be? So Alexander Popovich had actually published a book called Traduire la Menace that came out in 2017. And the book is just chock full of facts. There's over a thousand citations. And he really did the A to Z overview of looking at every fact he could find around the use of agents provocateurs, uh, police provocation and entrapment used in Canadian history, uh, throughout history. So whatever he could find, and he did so many access to information requests over different um, cases. And it, it, it's an incredible book to, in terms of knowing what publicly, what is the scale and scope of the use of entrapment uh, and agent provocateurs in Canada. And when I read it, I was just like, wow, this is so important. And I haven't really seen anything on this subject whatsoever in documentary form. And the type of documentaries I really like uh, to make are these kind of, you know, wide, wide ranging political documentaries that deal with kind of big politic theme, political themes that uh, can serve as, as popular education tools. So I, I like deep dives where we can look at a subject and and explore it and where people can have a bit of that aha moment, the Paulo Freire aha moment where they can connect what they learn through a, a documentary and and relate it to their own lives and to bigger, bigger issues. So I, I really felt like, wait a minute, there's there's a big gap in our, I guess, education right now in terms of there is no documentary that deals with the the overarching theme of the use of entrapment and agent provocateurs in Canada and how it's been used throughout Canadian history. Uh, we've seen those type of documentaries regarding the United States, mm. with the UK, uh, with other parts of the world, but there's really been nothing that looks at it from a Canadian perspective about the Canadian state. And I felt like it was important to kind of fill that gap. I don't think there's anyone else that would have been making that film anytime soon. So I, you know, whether it's ignorant or arrogance, I felt like that was something that I could do. It's another type of film that I can fit that, that gap um, in terms of content. And I, I mean, Hey, making a documentary, it's always going to take minimum two or three years, even mm. on the best case scenario. So it, you know, and it could easily be four, five, six years. So it's got to be a subject that you find fascinating. And it's essentially doing the the equivalent of a PhD with each documentary. So <laughs> this was something that I could sink my teeth in and say, okay, I'm ready to go the whole length with this film because uh, it's bigger than me. I'm wondering why you think this topic has not been explored because as we see in your documentary this has been going on for decades why have have americans and british and other other you know countries told these stories but in canada we haven't well i think there that, that's a question that's much more about how documentaries get produced in canada and the self-censorship that comes with our ability to produce a film. If you don't think you're going to be able to get funded, it's very unlikely that you're going to make a film, right? It's it's that simple. So uh, I took the risk, you know, of saying, wait a minute, will I be, you know, 
I, I thought that I would be able to fund this film. I quickly realized that would not be the case. I genuinely thought with the success of my previous films and my profile of doing big political documentaries that I would be able to navigate and convince a broadcaster that this is a fresh topic that's never been done, that it has a lot of appeal on a you know mass market to Canadian audiences and that we should have it broadcast in Canada. That's not the case. And mm. so without a broadcaster license, there goes all the funding for the CMF and your chances of getting the telefilm or, you know, other funding. It's, it becomes very limited and, it, you know, much more difficult. So if I hadn't been the producer as well as the director, this film wouldn't have worked out because any producer would have said, well, wait a minute, <laughs> we, we did not get any production funding. Therefore, we will have to let the project go. Mm. So, I mean, it's a bigger question as to how we only have a handful of broadcasters in Canada that can provide licenses for documentaries. And I argue that there's a lot of benign, banal content that's getting remade you know, there's very little originality and it's not to be dismissive to the incredible content that so many of my colleagues are making that are being on broadcast, uh, that are being broadcast on the different Canadian channels. Uh, there's just a lot that I find we've already, it's already been done. It's already been seen and it's extremely safe. So it begs bigger questions in terms of wouldn't broadcasters want the eyeballs where it's something engaging and interesting? But, you know, Canada, in terms of politics and elitism, it's a very small circle, mm. right? It really is in terms of a who's who club and people who are connected in terms of the, you know, the editors who are the commissioning editors who are providing licenses, they are in a very elite position of rubbing elbows and the Canadian secret police, the Canadian security intelligence service and our national police, the Royal Canadian mountain police, right? These are institutions that by and large are extremely respected and revered by the masses. And so why would they stick their neck out and speak against these institutions in terms of they might get eyeballs for the one film, but they're going to be breaking long-term relationships. These like long-held pacts yeah, no. between media and, and the state. And I can understand why probably the discussions were, wow, this is really interesting and it's going to be a good film, but is it worth it? Is it worth it for any of the blowback? Is it worth it for the criticism that we might get? Uh, and that I might, you know, be sticking my neck out, you know, for the wrong reasons. So I could see why commissioning editors probably just said, not worth it. Yeah. We'll, we'll take another benign, banal documentary that we've already seen. What I was really struck by, though, when you mentioned America and England and other countries, uh, is how we think of, we as Canadians, the, the, the Canadian identity, we think that, you know, in a lot of ways that, oh, we don't deal with the stuff that that they deal with, you know, our our security apparatus isn't spying on us, isn't looking on us. So it might, you know, like, so I, I guess that's what I was thinking was that like, maybe nobody had even taken this idea, you know, to, um, to you know, broadcasters <laughs> before, right? Because they didn't even think. There's definitely this benevolent Canadian mythology that people love to sit in that position of it's not us. 
we're not the big bad Americans. Yeah. It's them that do these crazy entrapment cases and false flag operations, not us. In the same way that when we talk about war and op- uh, occupation and imperialism, that it's never the Canadians through NATO that are participating. It's always the big bad Americans or the UK. And Canadians love this myth making and and holding on to this identity and. The Canadian state has reinforced that because for the last 150 years, there's it's been in this Canadian state's advantage to push this idea that we we all collectively love to embrace. So to to break away from it and say, hey, wait a minute, we're not this ideal country, you know, of kumbaya, peace, uh, holding, loving people. Uh, that actually our police forces do some pretty atrocious things. And I think it's in the best interest for the majority of Canadians to be aware of this. That um, that doesn't sit well with the constant narrative that we've been given and that we, you know, um, I think take pleasure in it as well. The anger for this film is this couple that lives in Surrey, British Columbia, um, Omar and Anna. Uh, as we meet them, we learn that they were, you know, uh, former ho- homeless, houseless people um, that, you know, in their recent, you know, in, as where the story begins, they are recent uh, converts to Islam and they're really trying to, you know, build their lives. Uh, and very quickly, uh, they are targeted. Why do you think Omar and Anna in particular were targeted for this, this, you know, entrapment episode? Well, I think, you know, it was a matter of the RCMP and CSIS needed a victory. The thesis of the film is that these operations have been happening continuously throughout Canadian history. And the film showcases different cases that we are publicly aware of because the whole access to information uh, conundrum makes it difficult to even know, you know, what what had like what are the different cases. So it, this continues to happen throughout Canadian history. The RCMP and CSIS needed a so-called victory, needed a win because they want to continue to justify the rate, like the rise of their budgets. And they want to continue to see uh, a growth in their budgets and their spending. Uh, And so, you know, they're going to take a target that looks like low hanging, easy fruit and people who are marginal, whether it be mental health, whether it be substance abuse, whether it be, you know, just not having much community. um, Those are all factors, I think, in terms of who they're going to pick. And I think they thought that, No one was going to dig much around this case. They were going to be arrested for planting what they thought were real bombs, but ended up being fake bombs. And that they were going to be thrown in jail for 40 years, both of them, and then no one would look back. Mm. It's only because they had, you know, family members that I guess the RCMP did not think would come to their aid, Omar's mother, who helped finance the whole appeal process, which you know, they had to first go through a whole trial where they were convicted, they were in jail, and then for three and a half years launch an appeal process, which is, you know, quite expensive and, and laborious, that it came out that it was a massive case of entrapment. Hmm. If you don't have those resources, then you would they would have never gotten out. They would have never gotten their time of day to, to argue a case of entrapment. 
So I think it's that simple that, um, hey, you pick on people that you don't think are going to have any recourse and ability to fight back, and you're going to get to, you know, state of the media, look at what we did. Hooray, we caught these terrorists. Which they did. I remember those news stories. Breaking news, bombs at the legislature. We caught the, I was like, and your first reaction as the everyday Canadian being like, well, that's good. They caught the terrorist. Yeah. Yeah. Shocking. We get to see the entrapment unfold in your film via the surveillance videos that I found very shocking. Uh, because just because it's like you see the entrapment, the coercion happening, it's right there. It, they would, it's all laid out for us to see. What shocked you the most as as you you know reviewed these videos for the first time? I think what shocked me the the most is that I, I, I mean I think I don't know if it's shocking, but I guess it was more of like a feeling of discouragement of how. Um, people of color and, you know, people from different faith-based communities will be specifically put into roles to further a narrative of Muslims and people of color being terrorists and, and how, I guess, those individuals will participate. So what I understand as, you know, furthering a dynamic that actually puts them at a disadvantage mm-hmm. and and how much that was the case uh with the, the with this uh, example of entrapment that it mm-hmm. was people who are muslim and people of color that were used to you know create the trust uh in anna and omar that they were getting counseled by muslims and and people that they should trust and 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 that that dynamic and it's very insidious and it's just it's very disturbing so the more i saw that you know the, the how and how crafted it all is it's 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 bonkers right and of course there's parts in the film where omar is very much questioning and where anna counsels him and says i think this is a police operation yes. and where, he, where they where they he tries to say hey wait a minute you know there's there's trust issues and how that's um, revised, you know, it's just completely cognitive dissonance, you know, revisionist that's done. And um, yeah, I, I mean, obviously with um, the ability of foresight and being able to look at it now in a 10 years later type of context, it's just mind boggling, but it, it, it actually just makes me very sad. And the more I watched it, it, it made it made me feel very sad at how people are used and tricked. Yeah. And I'm going to say this very um, sarcastically or cynically, but well, now that this is out, this never happens. This won't ever happen again. Right. Right. There's no way that this could possibly be even happening right now. Right, Amy? Well, the film argues that actually we have to use this as um, instructions for what will happen next and what's happening now. That it's happened throughout Canadian history, so there's zero reason to think there's been any change in policy and use of uh, agent provocateurs and the use of entrapment, and that the film argues that, well, what is the biggest existential threat that's facing us all is the climate crisis. Mm. And the Canadian state does not seem to be changing gears whatsoever in terms of policies regarding the extractive industry, but rather that it's going to double down on supporting the extractive industries till the last drop. 
with the continuation of the pipelines and furthering, you know, the extraction industry. And so the the argument is that we have to assume that the people who will be targeted next are indigenous people and land and water defenders who are fighting to, to speak out against the climate crisis that we're all facing now. Uh, so that's that's my position and that's the position of the film. Mm. How have Omar and Anna been impacted by this experience? Well, I think there was a lot of empowerment through the process and by the end of the film, and I, I had been helping them, they were looking for a lawyer that would be able to help them launch a lawsuit uh, against the RCMP, which they've done. Uh, and that's how the film ends with a title card explaining their their latest steps with them moving forward with a lawsuit against the Canadian government for their for damages. And, and I don't think when we filmed with them and when we began this process years ago that, you know, they they were open to the idea, but they really didn't know how to go about it. And I, I think by sharing their story, because they hadn't shared their story, no one had really taken an interest from their point of view and mm-hmm. was looking at at what they experienced from a point of view of bringing into a larger narrative of what the Canadian state has done. Um, in terms of national security and these issues, I, I, I think it really it, it gave them a sense of um, vindication and mm. just feeling like well, less isolation. Mm. And it's good to see, too, that their faith is still very strong. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the film premiered at DOXA uh, in Vancouver earlier this year uh, and very warmly received. I remember uh, people seeing it at the time and being moved by it. Has there been anything in the response to the film that's either um, surprised you or has moved you? Well, you know, it's funny because at the world premiere at DOXA, at the uh, right off the top of the the Q and A, there was an undercover RCMP agent who was there who spoke up and came right to the front and explained that. He has been an undercover RCMP agent for over 30 years and that everything he saw in the film was absolutely true and that everyone needs to see it and that he had actually been part of that operation. And there's been different people in the last five, six months since the film have come out that work on issues of national security from the vantage point of a CSIS or the RCMP who who have given me um, compliments and been very thankful that I had the courage to speak out and, and, and make a film like this because they've seen it from the inside and um, it's just muzzle, muzzle, muzzle if you try to speak out from the inside. So, you know, there that reaction I, have, I was not counting on uh, whatsoever. I, back to my conversation earlier about in terms of financing the film and getting it out in terms of, Broadcast and censorship, I am surprised. My previous films have done very well in terms of Canadian festivals around the country. There's many festivals that have decided to not program the film. And I realize that this year there's been a overwhelming amount of submissions because so many people held their film during COVID and wanted to be able to wait till it was in-person screenings and what have you. But I am surprised by you know, the amount of festivals who have chosen not to program it 
And I can't help wonder as well if there's self-censorship happening just within festivals as well, where there's almost like a liberal discourse of we want to be progressive, but we don't want to necessarily speak out against certain institutions. And I I do think there's a dynamic at play. And I, I understand film festivals rely on sponsors and, you know, especially smaller communities where the relationships can be very tight and it's just easier to not make waves around these big central institutions within our um, within our Canadian state and national security is a huge one. And policing is is so, yeah, I guess, key that I, that it is surprising in terms of reactions, because every time the film does screen, it either wins an award or gets props and you know has a lot of attendance that we've been having to fight tooth and nail for every screening. And I'm so grateful that we've been able to be in theaters in Montreal and Saskatoon. And now that it'll be at the VIF Center uh, this, this week, but wow, it's been very interesting. And so I think there's a lot of dynamics at play uh, in, in terms of curation and programming and Maybe I don't want to come off as sour grapes because I know there's so many good films and it's so difficult and the competition is fierce. So it could just be the luck of the draw. But based on my previous films, I can't help but wonder if how much the content is leading to, to this dynamic of having to fight so hard for all of the screenings. Ooh, I applaud your courage. How would you like people to feel when the credits are rolling on manufacturing the threat? I think there's a lot of emotions that people often feel or will feel when they watch the film. I think they're going to feel a lot of outrage, a lot of surprise and shock, uh, a satisfaction of, wow, I just learned a lot. And I actually didn't know a whole bunch of that. And, and, and that's been a great commentary from people who watch a lot of documentaries who are saying this was fresh and new content that I genuinely haven't seen, even though I watch this many hundreds of documentaries per year. You know, so even you know, where it's like, yeah, you will learn something. I have no doubt. Even the most seasoned documentary filmmakers will, uh, or film watchers will learn something from this film. And I think there's a lot of just shock and awe and um, outrage that comes with it. Is there an action that you can tie then with the emotions that people will feel at the end? Like if if, you know, I as somebody who lives on this land and I don't like what I saw and I don't want it to happen to any more people, this entrapment, what can I do? Well, I mean, you're out in British Columbia. And so you actually have the BCCLA, which is such an important organization and one of two in the country that deal with issues around national security and who are who are critical and who are, you know, putting some pressure um, to the different police forces for accountability and transparency. So I would definitely say, look at what the BC Civil Liberties Association is doing. Uh, they have a campaign right now in terms of uh, petitioning for the RCMP to make changes in their policies and their practices. And you know that they're 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 doing a lot of the work. The other organization that's a national organization is the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Association, uh, monitoring group. My apologies and. You know, I would say check out what the International 
uh, Civil Liberties Monitoring Group is doing as well, because they're two of the only organizations that take on these issues. And uh, we need we really need to build more a education because there's such a denial around mm. the fact that this happens. It goes back to that benevolent Canadian myth. All right. We have to break through that and say, actually, we have a problem without people getting defensive. And then we can have a collective discussion saying, what is national security, you know, for the benefit of who and for what and how do we want it? Would not we would we not all feel safer with more uh, affordable housing and support systems across the country? Mm. Would we not feel like what is security, right? What is this idea of feeling safe? And in terms of resource and resource management, uh, and linking it to the climate crisis that we're all experiencing now, uh, and I think. If we accept the fact that, wait a minute, the use of entrapment and agent provocateurs uh, around, you know, that are targeting different communities that bring no, that, that actually give no real threat to our collective national security and that this is contrived, then, then I think, uh, wait a minute, people will want their, their resources to be going uh, in a different direction. Yeah. Amy Miller. Thank you for being here today. If people want to stay up to date on what you're working on, see future screenings where the film is screening, maybe even try to bring the film to their city, where can they go? What can they do? So we have a we have a website, Manufacturing the Threat. We have a Facebook group where that's where the majority of the information gets fed. Uh, distribution Multimones is the distribution company for the film. So anyone who would like to screen the film can get in touch with the distributor. And um, yeah, I really hope people have a chance to come see the film this week while it's at the VIF Center. That would be fantastic. All right. Thank you, Amy. Manufacturing the Threat is screening at VIF Fan City Theatre until October 20th. You can find information at vif.org. The YVR Screen Scene Podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Rani Furminger, and edited by Simon Furminger. Special thanks to Mariana Furminger for recording our Patreon ad and to Paul Furminger for technical support. Yes, Amy, we are a family business. Uh, you can find us on the socials at YVR Screen Scene and at Sabrina Arf on Apple Podcasts and wherever you listen to podcasts for free and at our home on the web at YVRScreenScene.com. Weber Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut. Hi, friends. Cat Law Hayquist here, and I'm excited to introduce you to thedramaclass.com. Thedramaclass.com provides online workshops and classes designed to provide inspiration and instruction in the sometimes overlooked areas you need to be successful in your acting career. Things that they don't often cover in studio classes. Things like tax prep for actors, the power of costume in getting a job, what to do if you primarily work on camera and find yourself with a voiceover audition, what you can do to adjust your performance to the camera lenses being used, and so much more. Maximize your opportunities by filling in the gaps that will make your craft your career. Visit us at thedramaclass.com, sign up for our newsletter, follow us on social, and explore what will take you to the next level.